when we finally had that data, you got a sense of why they didn't want the public to have it. Because it showed that 7.7% of the vSafe users, of the a little bit over 10 million, reported needing medical care after a COVID-19 vaccine. Aaron Siri, managing partner at Siri and Glimstead, has led several high-profile lawsuits against vaccine manufacturers and federal health agencies since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. If they prevail, in five to 10 years, what will happen is that we'll reset the normal health baseline in America for heart issues, cardiovascular issues. That will be the new normal. In this comprehensive two-part interview, Aaron Siri breaks down how vaccine manufacturers secured unprecedented protections from liability three decades ago. There is no other product that I'm aware of that is afforded this level of protection. And you learn things along the way that you just can't unlearn. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Aaron Siri, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Pleasure to be here. Aaron, you are very, very serious about mandates, mandates of any sort of foreign substance being put into someone's body. You are deeply against these things. And you've done a number of court cases related to this, and most recently around the COVID-19 genetic vaccines. Uh, Let's start here. Your law firm focuses on this now. Uh, How did you get into this? So um, I should just say I'm not deeply against people taking medical products, injecting medical products. In fact, I fully support everybody's right to take as many medical products as they want, as many times as they want. The only opposition uh, that I have is when you force somebody to do it, either through coercion, sticks, punishments, when they don't want to, because it's just a basic civil right that everybody should have to be able to make their own medical choices without coercion. Um, In terms of how uh, um, I I got into this, so to speak. You know, I was a a commercial litigator for many years. Somebody I had worked with at uh, a firm that I'd been with for for many years, for a number of years, Latham Watkins, was going to go work with the Department of Justice. He had gotten a job there. And at this point in my career, I had uh, left my former firm, one of the biggest firms in the country, where, you know, that represents Goldman Sachs and so forth. And um, he contacted me and he said, I'm going to work for the Department of Justice, 
But I've got this flu shot case where I have this nurse who's seriously injured from a flu shot, and um, uh, I can't represent her anymore because I'd be conflicted because it's the Department of Justice that defends against all of these lawsuits brought by people claiming a vaccine injury. That if you're injured by a vaccine, you can't sue the manufacturer. You have to sue the federal government, the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services in something called the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, part of the Federal Court of Claims. And would I be interested in taking the case? Because I had done some related work at, up until that point. And so um, I said, sure. I took the case on. Uh, we, we ended up obtaining compensation for a POTS case from the flu shot. And there were a number of other cases at the time that I took on in a related kin, I should call it. And you learn things along the way that you just can't unlearn. Well, one of the things you learned was that you're suing the Secretary of Health and Human Services. How many people know this, even that this is the reality? I remember that was one of the very first things I learned about uh, vaccines, these, these products. And I remember, you know, looking up, working at a law firm, I looked it up and I was like, oh, the National Childhood Injury Act of 1986. And I looked at it and I was incredibly surprised. You know, if anybody out there wants to look it up, it's 42 USC 300A-11. Just type in what I just said, and you can read that section of law. Read the third paragraph in there, or something, fourth, third paragraph. And it, effect, and it says that you cannot sue a vaccine manufacturer or administrator for any injury or death from a vaccine. And I remember thinking, wow, I know that gun manufacturers have some level of immunity to liability, but we know guns can you know, can be dangerous. I know that nuclear power plants have a level of immunity to liability given to them by Congress as well if there is a nuclear meltdown. Well, we know nuclear power can be dangerous. But I was always told the vaccines are safe. And if a product is safe, why do you need to give the manufacturer effectively blanket, essentially, immunity to liability for the injuries that that product causes. Because if it's safe, certainly in the way that our public health authorities project it's safe to the public, there shouldn't be any injuries. Or there should be one in a million, as you often hear. And, and you, haven't, you hadn't thought about this before? Nope. Nope. It, it never even, I just thought the same thing everybody else thought. I drink water because um, that's good for me. I, I eat healthy food because that's good. I go to sleep every night. What is generally projected about these products by public health authorities typically is that similar to water, food, and sleep, you get vaccines. Um, and that, but that, that was an eye-opening moment. When I looked into it, just a little further, it didn't take much to scratch the surface, um, and you say, okay, well, why then? Why did they get this immunity? And this is, you know, it, you can read the uh, Y3 Brusewitz, U.S. Supreme Court decision from 2011 that even discusses it. And, and part of what it explains is that the immunity, that the, excuse me, liability that vaccine manufacturers were facing leading up to 1986 was so great that either Congress had to step in and give them immunity to liability, 
or the, at that point, the three routine vaccines given to children. That's all there was, three. And there was only one manufacturer left for each. They were going to stop producing those vaccines because they could not make a profit because the amount of liability they had to pay exceeded the revenue. But that's how it works in America. If your product is causing more harm than it is good, and the way we measure it, for better or worse in America, is by dollars, then you gotta go and make a better product. You gotta go make a safer product. And had Congress just done nothing and just let the market forces do what they do, those vaccine manufacturers, would they have just gone out of business? No, they're in the business to make, to make money. They would have probably retooled and made a better product, presumably, a safer product. But Congress in this wisdom said, it's okay. You know what? You can keep selling your vaccines that are causing a level of harm that is making you almost go out of business. We'll just give you immunity so nobody can sue you. So the vaccine manufacturers were given immunity to liability for their product. And not only for the three vaccines that were routinely given then, but for any future routinely recommended childhood vaccines, prospectively. And it was that act, it was that uh, um, immunity to liability that in my opinion has set off the cascade of events that we now see manifesting today around these products, how they're viewed, how the public views them, how our health authorities treat them, how pharma has been able to basically run amok. There is no other product that I'm aware of that is afforded this level of protection. When you look around you, all the products you experience every day, they're safer because the manufacturer is worried about liability. Your car is safer, not because some regulatory agency, maybe to some degree. It's because they don't want to get sued. They don't want to have to pay billions of dollars in damages. And virtually every product you interact with in America every day, and the manufacturers are able to be sued for design defects. Claims that the product could have been made safer claims that they failed you to warn about risks. But you can't sue pharmaceutical companies with regards to those claims in the same way for vaccine products. And what that has essentially done, it has left pharmaceutical companies to, uh, uh, for the last over almost 40 years to completely control the narrative around these products. And they've done a very good job in making sure that the people, the public, think their product's great. So you've been involved in a few, I think, quite high-profile cases, probably many. The, the, there's two that come to my mind, okay? Um, one is this, the Pfizer clinical trial data lawsuit. The other one is this uh, uh, vSafe data lawsuit, which you talked about at this recent, relatively recent hearing in December that Ron Johnson held. Why don't you give me an overview of the vSafe piece? I think a lot of people might be familiar with the Pfizer data. Maybe we can look into that a little bit more, but, but explain to me why you went after the vSafe data and what is it? So um, the vaccine policy work that our firm does, and we have a big vaccine injury practice and we have a vaccine exemption practice, but at the core of our vaccine practice is the vaccine policy work. And uh, uh, most of that is done on behalf of a nonprofit called the Informed Consent Action Network. It's a nonprofit started by uh, an individual named Del Bigtree. 
The Informed Consent Action Network asked us to get the data from the vSafe database. Uh, the vSafe database is what the CDC basically calls it its premier safety system for COVID-19 vaccines. It was rolled out specifically for COVID-19 vaccines. You know, for decades, the CDC has said that their VAERS database is their premier database for assuring vaccine safety, essentially. It's our signal detection system. So if there's a problem out there with the vaccine, they'll pick it up in VAERS, don't worry. And then they'll go to other databases to you know, assess it. Um, well, all of a sudden, just as COVID vaccine was about to be authorized, the first one in December 2020, um, the CDC and the FDA actually started changing their tune about VAERS and very quickly changed their tune about it um, after lots of reports started coming into VAERS. And they started saying that um, actually, you know, their issue with VAERS. And so we're going to roll out a new system called vSafe. And this is going to help us rapidly, those are the CDC's words, rapidly detect issues with the COVID-19 vaccine, safety issues, so we can address them. In designing vSafe, the CDC basically had checked the box options and it had a free text field. It had two categories of check the box options. The first category was asking people for one week after the COVID-19 shot to check the box of about you know, 18 or so symptoms, whether they experienced them and whether they were severe, mild, or, or low. Thing is, those symptoms are the same symptoms that the CDC tells you are normal, are in fact good for you to have after a vaccine and after COVID vaccine. They call it reactogenicity. They say that those symptoms show the vaccine is working. You're having an immune reaction, which is what they want you to have after a vaccine. They don't want it to be severe, but they want you to have it. So the truth is, no matter how high those rates would have been reported, it, it wouldn't have mattered. So that data is basically useless. Then there's a second category of check the box data in vSafe that was collected. And that was one of three options that users could have checked. One, did they need medical care? And then they could have, sub, they could have sub-checked whether it was hospitalization, urgent care, emergency room, or telehealth. The second one they could have picked, did they miss school or work? And the third option that it provided was, were you unable to perform normal daily activities? Okay? So it must be in what the CDC said is the rapid detection system to assure the safety of the COVID-19 vaccines. It was in those three options, which is where they were going to assess safety. Has to be. Where else would it be? Right? So I can, my client, wanted to know what rate did people check they needed medical care after a COVID-19 vaccine? Right? Presumably, since that's basically the only metric you're really asking people using vSafe to provide in a systematic way that you could get a numerator and denominator, you can get, here's the number of people that say they need medical care, here's the total number of vSafe users, divide that, and you got a rate. So we asked CDC, can you provide that data? CDC said no. As usual with our health agency, Despite their claims of transparency, we had to sue them in federal court to get the vSafe data. First lawsuit, they raised objections that um, they were interesting. 
So we brought a second lawsuit that basically addressed their objections in the first one to lock, box them in. And at that point, they finally capitulated. So it took almost a year and a half and provided all the check the box data in vSafe. And when we finally had that data, you got a sense of why they didn't want the public to have it. Because it showed that 7.7% of the vSafe users, of the almost over, a little bit over 10 million vSafe users, reported needing medical care after a COVID-19 vaccine. And these 10 million users, these are not folks that are like with VAERS, they just use the system to report an issue. They're signing up right when they get the shot at the CDC's urging, and most of them signed up in December 2020 in the, in the first few months of the vaccine's rollout. These are folks who are the enthusiasts. They were going out to get the shot. These are the ones who are fighting, clamoring over each other to get the shot. Nobody's being mandated to get it. When 7.7% of them are reporting needing medical care, it's probably a very good reflection of the, uh, 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 of the full population that got the vaccine probably can extrapolate. And if anything, it probably underreported because they were more likely to be vaccine enthusiasts. So on top of the 7.7%, there was another 25% separately that reported being unable to go to school or work and, being, and, and when able to, unable to perform normal daily activities. So 32% of folks reported having some issue. And so the fact that a medical product can cause you to go to the emergency room, that's not shocking. I mean, drugs all the time get pulled from the market. What's concerning here is the CDC promised transparency. And during the year and a half that they were hiding this data from the public, while we fought with them to get it repeatedly, they were publishing over a dozen studies using vSafe data, relying on vSafe to promise the public that these vaccines are safe. And when you look at those studies, what did the CDC include in them? They only included the first week of data of people reporting after the shot in vSafe of reporting needing medical care. And that rate was something like a half a percent. First of all, I don't know why one in 200 people needing medical care after the COVID shot in the first week is somehow comforting. And when you look at subsets in the vSafe data, which we now are able to do, it's as high as 3% in the first week for certain subsets if you do by age and shot, mm. which should be extremely concerning. But even half a percent, that should be concerning. They published that to the public knowing they know that injuries from vaccines don't only arise in the first seven days after a shot. We do cases in the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program all the time. It is well known that immunological issues with vaccines often take at least a week to manifest. It doesn't just happen in a minute. You have to build up those self-antibodies that cause a problem. That takes time. The idea that the first week is somehow representative of safety, they know that's not the case. They've had that full data set for a year and a half. They used only the first week to claim it's safe, where had they looked for the first six weeks, that number is way larger. And they knew that, and they never disclosed to the public. And it wasn't like the public wasn't asking. We were demanding it. We were suing them over and over for it. 
very concerning. And there's this other issue, right, if I understand it correctly, that they already knew at the outset um, from actually, you know, some FOIAs that we did, that there were very specific adverse reactions to these vaccines. So it wouldn't have been too difficult to include those as, a, as one of these drop-down menus or whatever, right? Yes, what you're talking about is, as part of the lawsuit we did, on behalf of ICANN against the CDC, we, don't, we not only ask for all of the data in vSafe, we also ask for all the documentation and communications surrounding vSafe. And, and, and some of the, that, that documentation included the protocol with the, the, that the CDC published for designing vSafe. And there were many iterations of that protocol. Version one of the protocol was from before December 2020, as you would expect. If you're gonna design the system, you need to have the protocol, the design document, before you launch it. Well, that first protocol from a few months before vSafe was launched, if you go to the very last page, it has what was labeled adverse events of special interest in a table that's entitled pre-specified conditions. Mm. It listed 15 medical conditions that we now, many of which are now the same issues with COVID vaccines that people are saying they're experiencing. Myocarditis, pericarditis, transverse myelitis. You can go down the list and see them. CDC knew about those conditions, knew the COVID-19 vaccine could, could cause them likely before it launched vSafe. So it had an opportunity. It had an opportunity to take those 15 conditions and make them check the box options in vSafe. Had it done that, we would be able to calculate a rate for these conditions among the vSafe users like this. If 500,000 people using vSafe reported myocarditis and you had 10 million users, that's 5%, 500,000 divided by 10 million, and boom, you'd have a rate. That would give you real safety. When CDC called it a rapid system for detecting safety, that would have been rapid. You'd actually have that. But when you think about criminal cases or criminal law, what you need to prove is scienter. You have to prove a guilty state of mind, that the person acted with a forethought, that they knew what they were doing was wrong. And here, the CDC was aware. It itself listed myocarditis, all, many of the issues we see today as adverse events of special interest. It is very aware that by not including those as check the box options, it relegated people who wanted to report those issues to a free text field that included in vSafe. So people would just type it in, but nobody types in the same thing the same way. Somebody says, I have a chest pain, I have a heart attack, I've got heart issues, my arm hurts, you know, I've got tingling in my side, tingling in my right arm, tingling in my left arm. People report cardiovascular issues in hundreds of different ways. Taking those free text fields to then try to standardize them and create a rate would be very difficult. Moreover, 
it clearly never intended to release to the public what was actually written in those free text fields. How do I know that? Because they're refusing to do it in the federal lawsuit we're in. They have taken a position in our federal lawsuit. They will not disclose the data in those free text fields. Did the CDC, you know, were they just negligent? Or did they really, would they go into this, you know, with some aforethought to try to hide harms? To me, that is probably the best, one of the best pieces of evidence. They went into this knowing this crop could cause these harms and designing vSafe in a way that would allow them, if it came to be that the vaccines causes harms, that they could hide that data and not have to disclose it to the public, or at least they're hoping to, I, I, you know, that lawsuit's far from over. Incredible. And I, you know, I just want to mention, you know, having a little bit of background in survey and experimental design, 10 million is a pretty good sample size. So I think what you're saying that it that it's you know likely representative of the general population it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it's better than in many ways it's better than the Pfizer data, right? With the Pfizer clinical trial data, which got a lot of news, that about thirty thousand people in the clinical trial, and that data was filtered through Pfizer before it got to the FDA and then got released to the public, right? And what do they do in the clinical trial? They ask participants to tell them about issues. What did VSAFE do? It asked participants to tell them about issues. But instead of asking 30,000 people, it asked 10 million. And instead of having to filter through Pfizer, it just goes straight to the public without that filter. That's why, in my opinion, the VSAFE data, that 7.7% number, is probably the best reflection of the safety of COVID vaccines you're likely to ever get on a mass scale out of our health authorities. Well, and compared to VAERS, of course, it has the denominator, which is, you know, critical at figuring out what rates are. Right. It's not just a signal, it's an actual rate. That's right. With VAERS, you don't know what denominator to use. So if you find 10,000 reports of an issue, um, you don't know what do you divide that with? How many people are, that had the issue are reporting it to VAERS? Out of what universe of individuals, you, you don't know. So it's, hard to, it's harder to calculate a rate, though I will say, pre-COVID, um, a HHS, an Agency for Health Research and Quality, AHRQ-funded study, one of our health agencies' study, funded uh, uh, Harvard Pilgrim, basically uh, one of the, uh, uh, and, and Harvard University scientists, to do a study of, of errors. And in that study, they noted that less than 1% of adverse events are reported to VAERS. I think that rate probably increased during the COVID era, but um, you know that that number is probably probably very accurate that it was less than one percent before the COVID COVID era, and, and probably not much more than that after the COVID era. So it's very interesting to me that you said that VAERS prior to I guess twenty twenty one was considered to be you know, the premier safety system. Because I, I didn't know what VAERS was until recently, I mean, in the last few years. And all I've heard about it is how it's just, you know, kind of this discredited system because anyone can report. But you're telling me for the, for the history of, of uh, you know, vaccine safety, it's just been a very different tune. Yeah, well, well the, f the fact that you'd never heard of it and most folks hadn't heard of it, and actually many, even doctors, had never heard of it is why the rates in there pre-COVID, uh, not surprisingly, was probably far less than 1%.
of the actual injuries from the vaccines that you find in that system. Um, but to, to answer your question directly, um, uh, yes, pre-COVID, if you go and look at the you know, peer-reviewed literature around vaccine safety, which is very thin, pick a vaccine, go to PubMed, and go, try, and go see how many studies you can find on that particular vaccine. You know, how many safety studies? You'd be surprised there are not very many. We know this because at our firm, when somebody calls us up and says, hey, my child got a shot and like, was totally healthy, was totally fine, and then all of a sudden developed X issue, where do we go? We start with the clinical trial data, which is usually useless for childhood vaccines because the safety review period is ridiculously short. There's not enough people in the studies are not well-powered, and there's typically no placebo-controlled virtually. Actually, there's virtually never. Um, we go then to the post-licensure studies, and there aren't many. But the few that there are, and many of them are from our health authorities, often use what database? FAERS. And they, what, they do, what they did, especially pre-COVID, is they would say, well, the lack of a safety signal in VAERS is a way that they say safe. They say you can't use VAERS to establish a safety issue because it's only a signal detection, meaning if there's a quote unquote signal, well, that doesn't mean the vaccine causes that issue. That just means we have to do further studies. Studies, by the way, which rely on data which we won't make available to you because we'll use something called, let's say, the VSD, the Vaccine Safety Data Link, or, and they have one or two other systems, and they will not give you the underlying data, contrary to uh, uh, the way science is supposed to work. Right? The underlying data of a study should be available for everybody to be look at, but they won't, they won't let you see it. But so that's when I say pre-COVID vaccine era, they always maintained that theirs uh, could not be used to establish causation or to show a vaccine causes an injury, but they, they frequently use it to say a vaccine is safe because they can't find a signal for an issue. And they've continued to do that even during the COVID era. VAERS can only be shown to a vaccine is safe. It can never be shown, used to show a vaccine as an issue. Fascinating. You said a couple of things, again, that I find uh, very disturbing <laughs> just now. Um, one of them was something about very, very short safety review periods for childhood vaccines. I'm going to put a pin in that, but sure. we definitely have to hit that. You can't just casually say something like that. Um, so I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to hit you up on that again. Sure. Um, in terms of harms, right? There's a lot of discussion of vaccine harms. The most, most recent interview as we're recording here is with someone who was harmed in the AstraZeneca trial, Brianne Dressen, um, you know, who's working with, I think, about 21,000 people who have been injured as part of the REACT-19 project that she runs. Mm -hmm. Is there any way to measure the harms associated with COVID-19 genetic vaccines and everything that's come before? Is there a way to assess that? I can't tell you definitively because the studies to answer the question that you just posed not been done, or have not been done, I would say, in, uh, in large-scale, robust studies that I would like to have at my fingertips. Studies that could easily be done, for example, using retrospective data, existing databases, 
whether they be insurance databases, whether it be the vaccine safety data link that have tens, millions or tens of millions of people in it, which include thousands or tens of thousands of completely unvaccinated children. All you'd have to do is take that existing data. You don't need to leave any child unvaccinated. These kids were already not vaccinated. All you gotta do is look at their health outcomes and in, in, in a captive HMO environment, for example, you typically have all of those kids' health records. The insurance company, like Kaiser Permanente, right? They give the insurance and they provide the medical care. You could just compare all what they call the ICD-9, ICD-10 codes. Those are billing codes. Look at all the billing codes for the kids that are completely unvaccinated and compare it to all the kids that have one or more vaccines. Those two groups. Let's look at the outcome. What are the rates of the immune-related or immune-mediated neurological disorders that we have seen explode in children between 1986 and the present? What is the rate between those kids who got no vaccines and the kids that got one or more vaccines? Mm. In 1986, according to public health data, only 11% of kids in this country had a chronic health issue. Today, according, actually as of, I should say 2011, according to the CDC's own data, around half of children in America today have a chronic health issue. I don't think that definitions changed. If you want to know the safety of the current childhood schedule, the rate, what you're asking, that's the comparison you should do. And what I just described to you is a simple study to do. That's not hard. And I'm not the first person to ask for it. I am in a long line of stakeholders. This has been going on for decades, asking for the study that I just described. Even our own federal health authorities published an entire white paper. They spent like a million dollars to put it together on how to do exactly that study in the vaccine safety data link. That system I described to you, which after scientists were able to get access to it in 2000, the CDC then moved it out of the CDC and put it in a trade organization that represents HMOs so that nobody could FOIA it, nobody can get access to it from the public, literally created that transition. That report itself verified there are thousands of children in that vaccine safety data link that are completely unvaccinated. And they even did a check, a, a medical review of their medical records to confirm that in fact, what they're seeing in the system reflects reality. And it was a very high statistical confidence level. Those kids have never gotten a shot. Our health authorities, they still haven't done it. I shouldn't say that. I should say they haven't published it. I don't know if they've done it, but I know they've never published it. And you know they won't give it to you. Uh, you cannot get access to the vaccine safety data link. It's about, you know, around a dozen health systems around the country, Kaiser Permanente, Southern California, Kaiser Permanente, Northern California, and various others. And what they do is they take the, the, um, all of the billing codes and they, sh they strip out all personal identifiable information. So you can never go, really go back and figure out who anybody is. They, uh, and then what they do is, and they have the vaccination information. They then take that de-identified data and they put it in a database so that you could then query it and you can run searches between, you know, um, 
somebody got these vaccines, what medical conditions were they diagnosed with? You can do that comparison. And you do that comparison, you can have, the, you can have the, uh, uh, the rate that you're talking about. And then you can have the data you need to compare what you're saying is COVID-19 vaccine injuries with what do the childhood vaccines cause? How common is it? Are childhood vaccines contributing to some degree of some stripe to the childhood chronic health issues, which would result in adult health issues that, that we're seeing? There have been smaller um, studies of that nature done, not by health authorities. There is, for example, a, a study out of the University of Jackson Department of Epidemiology involved a few hundred kids, homeschool kids, and was based on parental surveys. It's wonderful the study was done. I give a lot of credit to the scientists who did it. Extremely brave to do that study. And then publish the results. Um, and those results showed that children who had, for example, been vaccinated had 30 times the rate of rhinitis compared to kids who had no vaccines. What, what is that, just quickly? Uh, rhinitis, various, it's another immune, the important point is that it has immune component. Let's put it that way. Okay. And, and actually that is what various of the issues that they looked at and the rates between of the vaccinated kids were multiple times for all kinds of health issues, ADHD, various other health issues than the unvaccinated kids. The unvaccinated kids had twice the rate of chickenpox. The unvaccinated kids had more pertussis. But those are transient. The vaccinated kids had health issues that were chronic and for life. I would like to see that study repeated in a, a, you know, in a, in a few million person large database and data set. But that should be a canary in the coal mine. I mean, that should make our health authorities go, oh my gosh. The other thing I'll say is different between COVID vaccines and all other vaccines is this. COVID vaccine was rolled out on the public all at once. Pretty much you saw almost the entire population or a very significant portion get a shot in a very narrow window of time. So if there are health impacts, they would become a lot more pronounced and easier to pick up on. Mm. And you're seeing that. Mm -hmm. Most of the vac other vaccines were, were, were rolled out and slowly had uptake over two decades. So even many of the common vaccines you think of, first of all, they're only given to one cohort, one age cohort of children, right? Just four-year-olds, just six-month-olds, just two-month-olds. And it's only given to a percentage of them when they're first rolled out, only a small percentage. So a very tiny fraction of our population in this country ever got any vaccine when it was first rolled out. And it took a decade or two, two decades before even those who are just up to 20 years old got the shot, right? And so if it causes the health effect, what would happen is that health effect would recede into the backdrop and would become the quote unquote new normal. I'm not gonna speculate. The important point is this, at the end of the day, the question of whether it causes this or causes this should be answered. Those studies should be done. So those who are saying, Vaccines are not properly clinical trial. They're not properly safety studied out. They're, they're right. And they're right no matter what the outcome. And they shouldn't be chastised and, and, and put down on and attacked as they are for just asking for the studies. They are the pro-science folks in a way, though that term, I don't even know what that means to most um, in any event. So that's a long way of answering your question. Right. It's fascinating because I thought you know, there's some way to measure this, but even this, you know, kind of 
long rollout versus the instant rollout obfuscates the reality somewhat. Oh, it's absolutely. Very interesting. Yeah. Yes. In 10 years from now, five years from now, I'll make a prediction for you. Mm -hmm. If those who seek to censor the current uh, uh, doctors and medical professionals that are trying to shine a light on the myocarditis, COVID, uh, pericarditis issue, okay, just to use that as an example, if they prevail, and the CDC is working very hard. I mean, you, you see their most recent data study, and, and, and they're, they're saying that COVID itself causes worse heart, more cardiovascular issues, right? So if that narrative wins out, in five to 10 years, what will happen is that we'll reset the normal health baseline in America for heart issues, cardiovascular issues, right? That will be the new normal. The new normal will be what is now occurring in the hearts and cardiovascular systems of, of Americans after COVID vaccines. And had you rolled COVID shots out slowly over a 20-year period, that change in the cardiovascular issues, I, I would be sh shocked, so very surprised if uh, uh, that connection would have been made, or if it was, I shouldn't say that, if it was made, would have been uh, taken uh, would have gotten uh, anybody to really listen to it, mm. uh, rather than few people who would have been, you know, e you know, quickly cast off to the side. I mean, COVID has been an incredible, I guess, revolution in that it's made many people look at vaccines for the first time. They saw the clinical trials happen. They saw the coercion. They saw the rollout. They even saw how some of the science was being mucked with on natural immunity. And it made them go, whoa, whoa, whoa. And they actually are paying attention. And so scientists who take issue with these products, they're just products, actually are getting on, they're in, they're in the media, they're being interviewed. There are many such scientists for Hep B vaccine. There were such scientists for many of the other vaccines. I know them. Coming up next on American Thought Leaders. Think about this business model. You have a vaccine, you can't be sued for harms. You have a guaranteed market because kids are required to get it for school and your health agencies promote it for you and defend against any harm. In part two of my interview with Aaron Siri, he breaks down what he discovered in the clinical safety trials of other vaccines, such as one of the hepatitis B products. 147 kids, five days of safety monitoring after injection. There's no indication there was a control group. COVID-19 vaccines, they call rushed. They said the clinical trials were rushed. But the reality is, clinical trials for the COVID-19 vaccines that you know, the average American received compared to the clinical trials for almost every childhood vaccine were the most robust studies that have been done on vaccines.